It is a great joy once again to be here. It is so good to see all of you here today. Um, some of you, uh, you look good. Some of you look like you aren't normally up at this hour on Sunday. Now, I see a couple of you shaking your heads. We're so thankful that you're here. If you're here today as our guest, we especially welcome you uh, to this place. Uh, last few weeks, um, Scott, our senior pastor, who made a cameo appearance this morning, and we're thankful uh, for that, our senior pastor, he, he's here with us today. Um, and, and, he, and, and the last few weeks, he's talked about the ways we get into church. He's talking about the doors uh, that we come into, the doors of hospitality, the doors of prayer, the doors of service. The door of celebration. And it is, and I know many of you have spoken already what powerful messages those have been that have encouraged you and challenged you and sustained you in this time of transition in our church family. And so we're thankful for those. And I kept wondering, though, about that, that some of us, though, we hear about these stories about these doors, and I don't know about you, sometimes I struggle to go in them. Sometimes I get to the door and I just can't go through it. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe there are times in your life and in times in my life where you are in moments of spiritual crisis, in moments of spiritual difficulty, in moments of heaviness in your soul, in moments where you are searching and seeking for that which you have not yet found. Today's story is a story for you. We have a story here of this man. It is, Mark simply calls him a certain man, but this story is also repeated in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. And I'll give you a little hint of biblical interpretation. Are you ready? If it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's probably important. There we go. There's your, I saved you some time there. If they're in all three, it's probably important. But we find in Matthew and Luke, add details uh, that say, one, that this man was young, and one, that this man was a ruler. And so we call him the rich, young ruler. And this man comes, and this man, we know he has everything, right? But yet, somehow, there is something gnawing deep at his soul. And it says that he came, and I think he comes in a moment of desperation, in a moment where he is not sure what he can do. And I know that because Mark tells us two things about him. One, it says that he ran to Jesus, and two, that he knelt down in front of Jesus. Now today, if you did that, even now, it would be a sign that you were desperate to meet someone. But in the ancient world, it was even more so. One, men in the ancient Jewish world didn't run. It was undignified. Men walked, and the slower they walked, the more dignified and respectful they were. And two, nobody, no good Jew knelt for anyone but God. 
But here we have in this moment the story of this man whose struggles had simply come and overwhelmed him. And he comes and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man who had everything temporal, everything of this world he could ever dream, he comes and he asks, what can I do not just for this life, but for the life everlasting to come? I think he had an unsettledness in his soul that even though he was young, he knew that There is a day once appointed for all people to die and then the judgment. And I wonder what he thought might happen in that moment. Maybe you don't think a lot about that. But I suspect for some of you, maybe you do. And you wonder, what must I do? What can I do not just for eternal life to come, but eternal life that could begin right now? What must I do to have the relationship with Jesus that I've always wanted? What must I do when all the doors seem closed and locked to me? What must I do? It comes from that deep place of desperation and wonder. And Jesus gives him an answer that might make sense. He says, well, what must you do? Surely you know the commandments. And he lists them, right? Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't defraud others. Honor your father and your mother. And the man hears it and he says, yes, I know. I've heard that all my life. I grew up in the synagogue. I've been there every week. I mean, I'm a ruler. I'm a, I'm a religious leader. I know the commandments. I knew them from Sunday school or Saturday school. Almost. Uh, I knew them. I, I knew it. I learned it from when I was a kid. And since I was young, I have dedicated my life to keeping them. I have done everything that I was supposed to do. I have, I have kept the law. I have been faithful to my wife. I have been honest in my business dealings. I set my parents up with a condo down by the ocean. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. I've sat on every committee in the synagogue. I even said yes when the rabbi told me he wanted me to chair the annual stewardship campaign. But yet I feel like I've not, I don't have, I I am not yet ready to meet God. I do not yet have that relationship with God that I hear about. Maybe I'm stepping on your toes this morning too. Maybe you're here and you've spent your whole life in church. You've, you've done your turn on the committees and leadership and you've, you've, you've done everything you can but yet somehow you wonder what, what must I do? I've tried to live as upright a life as I can. I've tried to do all that is good. I've tried to follow the rules and do what I need to do but yet somehow I'm struggling And to this man, Jesus looks. And to you, Jesus looks. And it says that Jesus loved him. It says Jesus loved him. 
You know, it's amazing all the people in the Bible whom Jesus loves. Jesus can look and sees inside every one of us. He doesn't see the shiny, well-put-together, well-manicured, well-dressed exterior we put out for the world. Jesus sees down to our souls. He saw into the soul of the rich young ruler. He saw into the soul of the woman caught in the act of adultery. He saw into the souls of the men who nailed him to the cross. And even in the midst of all that, he loved them. And today he looks at you, wherever you are, and he loves you. He loves you not based on what you've done. He loves you not based on the merits you bring to the table. But he loves you because you are made in the image of God. He loves you because you are destined to be a son or a daughter of the God Most High. We live in a world that says that to love someone is to, is to say that everything they do is good. And that Jesus comes and he says that I love you not because of what you bring to the table, not because of what you do. I love you because of you. And that's the pattern of Christian love. And it said that he loves the man, but he says, I, but, but he sees into his soul, and he sees that the man has one thing. One thing. <clears throat> and I wonder if when Jesus looks into all of our souls, there is one thing that keeps us from a full relationship with him. And he points right to that bruise and he presses on it and he says, take all the money you have, all your land, all that you possess, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me. And in that moment, we realize that this man simply cannot let go of the one thing. And it says that his face fell. He was shocked and appalled. And he went away grieving. And that's the end of the story of the rich young ruler. He couldn't let go of the one thing. And so I suspect this morning, if you are in that moment of need and in that moment of spiritual distress, there is one thing. It might be money. It might be. It might be the money you have. It might be the money you have hoarded. It might be, that, that might be it, but I'm going to tell you, I don't think, it's not necessarily money for everyone. In fact, I was listening this week to someone who said, notice that Jesus, nowhere else in all of the Bible, tells someone to give away everything they have. Even little Zacchaeus, you know, who climbed up the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You remember that? Even he only had to give away half. But for this man, 
the money was the thing. And I wonder if the money and the one thing is the thing because it's that which defined him. Everywhere that man went, I wonder if as he is known to all history, they saw there goes the rich young ruler. That he had come to depend upon his wealth as security, as identity. That he couldn't imagine life without it. That it had become to him like an idol. That his keeping the commandments fell short. After all, what's one of the commandments Jesus didn't mention but is right up in the front? You shall have no other gods before me. And I wonder if the one thing for this man had become the thing that had become the very center of his life. That when he woke up in the morning, he thought about his land, his farms, his business. That when he went to bed at night, he thought about his land, his farms, and his business. Maybe it was about passing it on or caring for something of the previous generation, but that was at the very center of his life. And he fit God in somewhere in the corner. A good Jewish citizen. He went to synagogue. He was upright to the outside appearances. But down deep that God was not in the very center. And so I ask you today, what is your one thing? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your sense of status. Maybe it's your job that defines you, that, that the, the job you have, or maybe if you're retired, the job you had, it, it, it provides you a sense of identity of who you are. And that God fits in around it. It can even, and I'm going to tell you, it doesn't have to be bad things. It could even be your family. If you put your role as a husband or a wife or a parent or a child or a grandparent or a sister or a brother as the highest thing in your life and God fills in beneath it, you have made your family an idol. Your family has become the one thing that separates you from God. And that's hard to say, isn't it? Because we think of Jesus as the, the, the exponent of, of family values, but in the end, then Jesus occasionally tells people, he says, hey, you know what, if you're going to have to leave behind your parents or your brother or sister to follow me, he doesn't say it to everyone, but to those for whom it was the one thing, that's what he said. You know, maybe it's even your ideology, your, your politics, Maybe, you know, you, you can follow Jesus, but only so much as long as it agrees with your political party, whether left-wing or right-wing. I'm not going to get into this too deeply, but I think this weekend, folks, we've seen what happens when ideology is number one. We've seen what happens when people who claim maybe to be Christians have put their own ideology, their own view, uh, their own national view ahead of the church which Jesus has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. For them it was their ideology. 
Maybe whatever it is, it is that thing that gives you pride. It is that thing that gives you a sense that I can make it on my own. And Jesus says, anything that keeps you to try to make it on your own, that you must give up. You must not give up part of it, but you must give away all of it. And these are the moments where Jesus starts to scare us. Where Jesus starts to say, hey, I don't just want Sunday morning from 11.15 to 12.15 or 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock, maybe with Sunday school for extra credit. Jesus refuses to leave us there. Now I'm going to tell you, those are good things. Those are ways for us to dig deeper and to grow further into God's will for our life. But friends, I want to tell you what Jesus really wants is you. What Jesus really wants you to give up to him is yourself. Because then and only then can you go forth to live. We teach our kids this. We teach our, I, I, I love, we, last week we had a fantastic service with our confirmants and I keep thinking of, uh, some of you probably didn't seem up close, but if you were here last Sunday, we put white stoles over our confirmants and I asked uh, Ms. Jill and, and Mr. Jeff what those were and what those meant and, and what they did on part of it. You probably may not seen it up close. They wrote adjectives about themselves, who they were. And some of them put things like they were a, ch- a son or a daughter. They were an athlete. They were, uh, I think one of them put a bookworm. I identify with that. But the point of that was to say all of those things, they're not bad things, but they can become idols to us. They can become those things that we fill our hands with so much that when we get to those doors to the kingdom, our hands are so full, we can't even reach out to pull the handle. And so Jesus says, give it up. It's funny, the English translations don't get this, but in the Greek, basically, it's an interesting parallel. Jesus says, give up all that you possess, present tense, and you will possess, same word, future tense, treasure in heaven. You see, what happens when we give up is that we get back. It's not a matter of having nothing, but it's a matter of having Jesus first. When we read the Bible or we study the story of the great Christians of the ages, this is a lesson that everyone has to learn. Christianity is not compatible with the kind of religion that says, well, you know, just follow along, be a good citizen, do your duty, and everything will turn out fine. I wish it were. There'll never be any surprises. But what we find in the story of Christianity is that when we are Christians, we are often brought to that point of despair, that point of crisis. The Apostle Paul, in his letters and in the book of Acts, when he speaks, he talks about this a lot. He speaks about how he had the best education, educated at the Harvard of his day. He says, I was a rising star in Judaism, going beyond that of others. And yet, Paul had the moment of reckoning on a road to a town called Damascus, where he is literally pushed off the horse by a blinding light, and his life is reordered. 
And later on in his life, he says, all that I gained, all that I thought defined me and my identity, I counted all as loss. For the surpassing glory of knowing God. He said, all the respect I had, I went from being respected and invited at the best tables to being beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned. He writes his final letters from a Roman cell awaiting execution. And in the book of Galatians, he says, the secret to my life is very simple, that I had to die. And he said, I had to come and follow what Jesus said. He said, if any would become my disciple, if any would would enter into eternal life, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And Paul says this, he says, I found I have been crucified with Christ. And it is not I, but Christ who lives within me. The old life that I lived is dead, and the life I now live, I live in the power and in the grace of the one who gave his life up for me. This year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and it started with Martin Luther, a a monk in Germany who had a crisis of faith. That he found that he had done everything that they had told him to do. He had even become a monk. He He had cut himself off from the outside world and he came to the point though where his sins and his failures and his disconnection with God had overwhelmed him. And he found the simple word that says, you are saved not by what you do, but by giving it up, by having faith and trusting in Jesus. John Wesley, after my trip, you know I'd throw something in about this. He spoke of the difference between someone who is almost a Christian and altogether a Christian. He says it's really simple. And all most Christians got it all, it looks like a Christian from the outside, goes to church, does what they're supposed to do. But an altogether Christian is someone who has given up and opened their heart to God's love. Who has faith. And Jesus, when he comes to a moment of another man who had a lot going on, who comes and follows him, he says, you don't get to add me as another facet. You must be born again. You must be born again. I know this is not a fashionable thing for Methodists to talk about, um, that you must be born again. I was funny when I was in England. I was on a train with a woman, a, a woman, and, uh, and I was getting. I was on my way from the airport, and I was there, and we made small conversation. And she said, "Are you here for business or pleasure?" And I said, "Well, I guess it's business of a sort." She said, "Well, what do you do?" I always wonder where it's going to go when I answer this. He says, "I said, well, I'm a pastor." And she says, "Oh, you're a pastor. What kind of church?" I said, well, I'm a Methodist. She said, oh, is that one of those reborn Christian things? 
and you know, your pastor's very well spoken. And so I said, well, um, uh, it depends. I wish what I would have said is, well, it's not really a Methodist thing, it's kind of a Jesus thing. It's a Jesus thing that Jesus refuses to be just one part of your life. Jesus refuses to be put over in the corner because as long as you put Jesus in the corner and you hold something else in the middle, something is always going to be missing. And Jesus says, that one thing that you've got in the center that's not me, give it up. Let it go. Start over. You can have a new chance you can be born again. May we say yes. May we let go of all that keeps us from the life which God has for us. Let us pray.